All right, guys, what's going on? Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm really excited because I'm chatting with Dr. Quinn Hennick, and we're going to be talking all about hip pain during the squat. This is something I've dealt with personally for a long time, and now it's very manageable, but it took a very, very, very long time to get to this point, and I know a lot of other powerlifters struggle with this as well. So first off, Quinn, thanks so much for jumping on the, uh, the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here, man. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a physical therapist in Southern California in Orange County, California. I have an office inside of a weightlifting gym, which is pretty cool. I have my little, my little space and I open the door and there's this big barbell sport playground that I have at my disposal. So that's kind of a dream environment. And, uh, I competed in the sport of weightlifting for the last 10 years and, um, played American football before that in, in college and came into physical therapy school with a strength conditioning background as what I originally went to uh, undergrad for. So up to this point, just trying to kind of blend the worlds of rehab and performance, as they say, and, and uh, be a mediocre athlete myself so I can have context for the uh, athletes that I work with. And hip pain during squatting movements is certainly something that uh, I help people manage on a pretty regular basis. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, and that's exactly why I was super excited to, to have you on because I know how pervasive this can be, especially among relatively high-level lifters, actually. Um, I've, I've definitely noticed it with strong guys, especially big guys, it seems to be a little bit more pervasive. Now, that's just, you know, my own experience, so, you know, don't necessarily extrapolate anything from that, but uh, I just kind of wanted to set the stage for the conversation. So, can you talk a little bit about the difference between chronic versus acute pain and then also like a chronic versus acute injury maybe differentiate what those things are mm. well i wish i had definitive answers on those things i think my job would be a lot better and we'd, we'd have a, a lot more clearer picture on these things but first of all i guess just some some disclaimers that i think are important you know if if you experience some of the things that we're going to be talking about um, what we're going to be talking about are principles and generalities and things that we take from the current literature and apply it to practice. And it's based on our interpretation and it's not specific to you as the individual. Some things that we talk about may in fact be helpful for you. Uh, but if you're having problems with things, you should probably seek out somebody who can guide you on the day to day and, and guide you through that path. So of course, anything that we talk about is not specific to uh, diagnosing you or treating you. And then secondly, pain, just in general, forget the acute to chronic for, for a second. And, and let's just talk about pain. Pain is a very complex phenomenon. And um, we don't know a whole lot about pain. And uh, the model that is largely accepted and the model that I currently use is the biopsychosocial model of pain, meaning there are biological factors, sociological factors, and psychological factors that influence the experience of pain that cannot be separated. It's not, it's not bio versus psychosocial. Somebody doesn't have just psychosocial pain. These, these biopsychosocial factors are dynamically interwoven and moderate and mediate each other in complex ways that we currently can't model nor can we predict with very good accuracy or certainty. So the acute to chronic distinction is something that we arbitrarily put on these issues so that we can try to make sense of things. But there's 
it, it literally is chronic. When does, or uh, uh, arbitrary, when does a, an injury become, go from acute to chronic? Well, it's whenever we decided six weeks, three months, whatever the, whatever the researchers decided was going to be chronic. It's not like magic happens at the three month mark. Well, it's chronic now. And our management is completely different. That's not how these work. So what you do is you base it on your body's current response. You base it on your training history and you base it on your injury history. And those things are largely how we dictate the, uh, the, the management. So, Acute generally thought to be it's it's just happening. You're experiencing this difference in your pain experience, um, and it's new. And a lot of times, the cutoff to acute to chronic is like three months. Um, you'll see it sometimes six weeks, but again, arbitrary. But let's just say this: my hip didn't hurt last week. It hurts now. It's hurt for three days. Generally, we're going to call that acute because it's new. And your history of this isn't very long and um, you haven't had something like this before. If you do have a history of, of hip pain with squatting, but it comes and goes, you could say that I'm in, I'm currently in an acute phase of my chronic situation. So this is kind of an acute on chronic issue. It's been happening on and off for the past, you know, several months or even several years. Uh, but you know, the last six months I felt really, really good, but the past week it's back. So I'm kind of in an acute phase of this chronic situation that I've dealt with on and off. So kind of working definitions of things that just inherently have been around a while versus something that you're dealing with uh, in the short term. And that could be six weeks, that could be three months, it's whatever you define it as, as far as a timeline. Now, from a response, from a, from a physiological response standpoint, we can think of acute many times when we look at uh, inflammatory markers. So I know we're talking about the hip for this show, but let's look at, let's, let's just take a, a detour and talk about the ankle just cause it's an easier example to conceptualize. Let's say you sprain your ankle, you roll, you're playing basketball or something, you're running, you step off a curb and your ankle rolls, inverts, inversion sprain, very common. You hear pops, your ankle swells up like a grapefruit. That's an acute quote unquote acute injury with an acute inflammatory uh, cascade, joint swelling, uh, inflammatory markers, cleaning up, you know, all the damaged tissue. Pain can come along with that, certainly, but tissue damage and pain are not one-to-one. -one. So that's another important distinction to make. Um, you can snap your leg in two and it doesn't hurt until you look down at it, or it doesn't hurt until hours after, you know, kind of that, that initial shock is worn off. So pain and tissue damage are related but they're not perfectly correlated. So that's an important distinction that I think we're probably gonna make as we go into the show. But, you know, the ankle example, so let's say the acute inflammatory stage goes away, there's no more swelling. Um, you could get a, maybe an MRI and you would see no more damage in the ligaments, like everything's healed. And maybe that's a six to 10 week process, uh, but you still experience sensitivity in the ankle. You're still having a pain experience um, and now let's say we're six months after that really bad ankle sprain, but that ankle is still sensitive to loading and it still feels fragile. Um, you now we could call that more of a chronic instability or a chronic issue. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of stop there because 
we could go in circles with the acute to chronic stuff, but in general, it's arbitrary, but just think of acute as something that's relatively new, um, potentially, uh, you know, an injury that happened in a flash, you can kind of identify the mechanism uh, versus something that's a little bit harder to pin down and has been kind of going on for a while. And there's not necessarily an inflammatory response from your body, but there's a pain experience that's inhibiting your ability to do the thing that you want to do. And those are some distinctions that are, that are useful clinically. I actually was speaking with, I'm not sure if you know him, Sam Spinelli. Yeah, I know Sam. Yeah. So he was on my podcast again, not, not too long ago. And uh, we were chatting uh, about, I can't even remember actually, to be honest, but, uh, but one of the things he said that I found really interesting, and this is so like, when you say it, it's stupidly obvious, but at the same time, it's not necessarily something that a lot of us internalize, um, that, that pain is inevitable in life. Like you're always going to experience pain at some point in your life. And I think a lot of the times too, you know, we lift, we get hurt and we're like, oh, I got hurt because I lifted, you know, weights or whatever. When in reality, it's like, it, it's very likely that you would have gotten hurt doing pretty much anything else, you know? at some stage in your life. You know, obviously if you participate in a sport, your likelihood of getting injured in that sport goes up, obviously. But uh, just, just as far as like the association goes where people tend to have this kind of avoidance strategy from pain, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of like, an, it was an interesting thing that, uh, that he mentioned. Well, we, humans have the ability to inject emotions into situations that, that other uh, animals on this planet probably don't have. And so the pain experience is, uh, it's, uh, you know, it can be obviously unpleasant and it can keep us from doing things that we want to do. And we can think beyond that, you know, we can start, uh, kind of projecting on it and we, we tend to do that. So it's not just like, it's like the book, why zebras don't get ulcers because they have these stress responses. But then when the, when the stress is gone, or when the threat is gone, their stress response goes away because they don't need that. But with humans, we can kind of keep the stress response going um, based on our behaviors and based on our thoughts and our actions and these types of things that probably confound all of this even more. But that's, again, this biopsychosocial model, it's, um, we can't separate the psychological from the biological. And uh, that's, what, that's what makes it so complex, but you're right. You know, pain and injury are things that we just, they are barriers and, and stressors that we have to manage as humans, just like we manage any other barrier or stressor uh, in our life. And if you're pushing performance, performance, human performance, sports performance, and health are, are inversely related a lot of the times. Like if you're putting hundreds of kilos on your back and picking up hundreds of kilos trying literally pushing the threshold, pushing the edge of your body to create adaptation, you are inherently taking on risk that you wouldn't have if you just sat on the couch and didn't do that stuff. So yeah, you're right. This, this notion that we can, we can push performance, but that we shouldn't ever experience these setbacks is just not realistic. You know, when we think about the goal of, of performance, yeah, 
And, you know, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the injuries that I see anyways are avoidable. They're just doing stupid shit. You know, it's like, I'm going to increase my volume by 65% this week. And you're like, okay, well, let me know how that goes. You know, but uh, I, I think a lot of what, uh, what I want to hear about as well are some of the things that are avoidable that um, just through a little bit more strategic planning and just by building a little bit more awareness, we can avoid as well as if someone already has that and it's not due to, you know, poor planning or anything like that, um, how we can kind of go about avoiding that. So what are, what are some of the potential reasons an athlete may experience, um, whether it's lateral hip pain, like kind of around the piriformis area or just kind of that anterior hip pain when they're squatting, uh, usually below parallel? Uh, the, the reason, the reason why somebody's hip hurts, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, <laughs> so I hear you. No, why? Um, I mean, why would somebody's, why do we see more hip pain with squatting than we see, um, you know, posterior ankle pain with squatting? So there's a, there's a reason that these patterns crop up in certain body parts, that are kind of related to certain movements more than others. So it, with the squat, I mean, you just think about the nature of the movement, you're taking tissues and you're jamming them together. So like you are impinging your hip joints every single time you do a squat. This is not a bad thing. This is just biomechanics. You're, you're taking your bones and you're approximating them. You're, you're, you're literally smashing them together and all of the, the tissues in between those bones and all of the muscles. So you're putting pressure on that area. Um, is that abnormal? No, it's not. It's just the movement, but it becomes a problem when the dosage of the stressors along with your recovery status, your nutrition and your sleep and your life stress and all these things add up and, and, uh, summate to you surpassing your, your tolerable dose. And that's, it's as simple as that. Why do, do sometimes you your tolerable dose is higher than other times. Why have I done this program before? And I've done this amount of volume before I didn't get hurt. And now I got hurt. I don't have the answer to that. And I'm never going to have the answer to that. Uh, I don't believe unless we can, unless we get a whole lot better at modeling the, the human organism, but it, it comes down to the dosage of the stressors beyond your current capacity. And we can simplify the injury that way. Why does it happen in the hip often with the squat? Because that's the tissue that's taking the most load. So I think much more pragmatically, instead of avoiding the first occurrence, I don't, I don't program for prevention. I program for performance. Um, I don't program for prevention because pe we, people get hurt. Strong people get hurt. People who train really, really hard with high volumes get hurt. People who train really, really hard with high volumes don't get hurt. And it's too difficult to, to separate those things. So I program for performance. And if we have a setback, I think pragmatically, that's where, that's where the magic happens because how you respond to those setbacks will set you apart from other people because there's going to be a lot of people that get stuck in the perpetual rehab state because they continuously either push way too hard and push into it way too much and don't pull back and they just fall off a cliff or like what you said earlier, they're, they're so fear avoidant of any type of discomfort, they pull back way too much and they detrain and they think everything should be discomfort free. Um, 
and then they have no capacity to build back up. And so you get caught in this perpetual rehab. So you're like, we call it rehab purgatory, where you just keep having setback after setback and you feel like you're not making any progress at all. And sometimes even you just stop training, right? There's so many athletes that come and walk into my door and say, yeah, you know, I just, it just wasn't worth it. So I took the last 10 months off and, you know, I want to get started again. It's like, well, damn, now we're detrained, you know, it's, we're so detrained and it's not like this thing is just going to be magically fixed from doing nothing. So it's this, it's this paradox that training and do and load is the, is the antidote as much as it is the poison. And the magic comes from finding the balance, the right elixir. And if you overdose, not freaking out and pulling too far back, and if you underdose, knowing when you can kind of push the, the thresholds a little bit. So we can get into specifics about that stuff, but I want to stop there because that's just kind of like the, you know, the, the general diatribe here in terms of like preventing injury versus programming for performance and then managing the injuries when they happen. But I think those distinctions are important. Right. So you said a lot of things there that, uh, that I definitely want to explore one of the things you said obviously was um, training being guided more by observing individual response as opposed to assumptions, right? So are we overdosing? Are we, are we underdosing? You know, some individuals respond very, very well to high volume. Others don't. Some respond well to high frequency versus low frequency and the reverse is also true. And so mm -hmm. um, really coming to, to individualize that approach. And I think one of the areas where that is really relevant is, where a lifter might look at someone, I don't know, let's just say Dan Green for, for, you know, for instance, and see what he does and say, oh, well, he likes to do really high volume front squats and that builds up his deadlifts. So I'm gonna do the same thing. And it's like, well, you're not necessarily Dan Green and you need to, you know, I think it's great to test those things, but at the same time, you need to observe individual response and see what is actually working and how your body's adapting to that. Um, and so I, I think it's a really great point that you brought up. And one of the other things you mentioned, actually, I'd like to, to get you to expand on a bit is the impact of, of sleep on the pain perception and on, mm -hmm. you know, potential incidents of injury and why that might be, whether it's a, you know, sort of a slowed down rate of cognitive performance or decreased reaction time or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, and on the, the Dan Green point, whether it's Dan Green or any other you know, high performer that you see, what you don't see is how hard they work to get there. It, you know, like it's, it, social media is a highlight reel. So the work that they put in to get to that point is where you are, where you need to do. If you want to train high volumes, awesome, but you've got to earn the right. You've got to chip your way up there. And that's, and that's where it takes some, um, some planning you know, and, and potentially having a, another brain there with you to, to help you with that process. So there's, there's not a problem chasing, you know, seeing the top guys and wanting to get to that point, but it's, it's, it's the journey to get there that is missed when you just kind of look at the end product. Um, so you're totally right there. And in terms of, um, oh gosh, I blanked on the other question. What was, what was the, the, the main one? the the impact of sleep and nutrition oh sure but primarily sleep yeah it's interesting there's definitely there's there's a decent amount of data showing an increased pain sensitivity with sleep deprivation and that kind of makes sense i mean when you're sleep deprived you're just a little bit more you're irritable 
things like your, your perceptions are, are just not as finely tuned. You can't, you can't dim things down. Like when I'm sleep deprived, I'm sensitive to kind of like sounds and shit just annoys me more than usual, you know? And, but pain, because the pain perception is this, uh, you know, this innate neurological sensation, it's kind of intertwined with all that stuff. So you, you know, you're sensitive to these, you're more sensitive to these stressors and these stimuli in the world than you would typically be. Pain is just one of those things. So you see like sleep deprivation, some of these like little sensitivities that maybe we've had a history of that have been controlled, but then you have like a week of really crappy sleep and you just start, the stuff starts to creep up again, like kind of out of nowhere, it seems like, but it's really just your body is just overall not recovered, more stressed than normal. So it's almost like these things are kind of rising to the top again, because uh, your body has less resource to just keep everything at bay. So I, I don't think, I don't want to go, you know, into sleep too much because I think people understand that it's important, but there's definitely a link there. So it's for my athletes, you know, if they're frustrated because they're not making progress and they keep having these uh, pain sensitivity or injury setbacks, but they're under eating or they're not sleeping or both, you're, you're adding gasoline to the fire or it's only working against this. So you have to understand that these things are not separated. And I think that's really, really important because sometimes we do forget. Um, we're like, yeah, well, I know sleep is important, but I just want to be able to train hard. <laughs> or like, yeah, I know I should probably eat more, but you know, I just want to be able to go to the gym and lift and like have fun doing it. It's like, okay, well, you'll have more fun if you feel better and you're not, you know, tired and hungry and, and weak feeling. So it's, it, it all plays into a part, but it, it, it definitely, it definitely matters when people are on a cut, like when they first meet me and they want to work with me and they're like, oh, I'm having hip pain with squatting. Um, I'm on a cut right now though. And I have a meet in six weeks. It's like, whoa, man, there's a lot, there's a lot here to deal with. So if you're, if you're currently injured, um, it's ideal if you're on a, you know, either caloric maintenance or even in a, a surplus, Cause that's like one less stressor that we have to worry about is you're being underfed. And then I will definitely ask about sleep, you know, just general, general questions, house, house quality and quantity. Um, and really just kind of looking for the outliers, you know, you're really looking for the people who's like, Oh my gosh, you know, my sleep sucks. I get like four hours a night. Um, and you can just kind of tell that they're frazzled and, and they're burning the candle on both ends, you know, and, and so we have just a real conversation of, of you want me to help you with your rehab, but this is going to be a thing that we have to address as well. Like this bucket is important as part of this. Um, and if they say, oh, sleep is great, you know, I get plenty of it, then that's just maybe something that's like that box is ticked off and we don't have to worry about it. But it's at least um, it's at least asked about because it matters. As Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, like you said, we all kind of know intuitively you say it and you're like, yeah, of course. But then at the same time, I would, I would wager that probably 70 or 80% of people are, are under-recovered most of the time. Uh, well, and it's like, what do we do to supplement that? Well, we don't clean up our habits. We just like drink more coffee or like, it's, you know what I mean? We're just, we do things to just, we put a Band-Aid on the Band-Aid on the Band-Aid. And then we wonder like something about hip pain. We try to, re we make it so reductionist 
like there's so many layers to this and that's why it's so hard. These conversations have to be so nuanced because we could completely ignore the sleep and nutrition side of things. Um, but that would, that would be missing a huge, uh, a huge facet of this. And you're right. You know, these obvious things, people, a lot of people don't have them uh, shored up. So low hanging fruit, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with something, low is hanging fruit. How's my sleep? How's my nutrition? Like before you even have to try any other intervention, you can ask yourself those two questions and see if there's any room for improvement there. And that's only going to help the cause. Yeah, hundred percent. And I've definitely ran into that a couple of times myself and with, with athletes, especially new athletes, kind of, as you mentioned earlier, where you get someone who's brand new to come to and they're like, Hey, I've got all these problems. And then you get to this one point and you're like, okay, I'm like 80% sure it's just because you're not eating anything and you're getting like three hours sleep a night and drinking 10 Red Bulls <laughs> yeah. right there, you know? Um, so I, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about um, kind of structural issues and then different movement strategies that individuals utilize, as well as like different muscular contributions and how that might play a role in, in the development of hip pain or even the management of hip pain. So um, there was a paper by Vygotsky and, uh, and Megan Bryant and back in 2016, uh, just for the listeners, if you're interested, the title is Relative Muscle Contributions to Net Joint Moments in the Barbell Back Squat. And essentially they were looking at relative muscular contributions at various joint angles in the squat. And so I wanted to kind of open up the conversation and uh, get your input on how not only different movement strategies might impact these things, but also like if someone's mobility is restricted. So if someone has very poor, let's say lumbopelvic control or poor internal or external rotation, and that forces you know, them to access range of motion through maybe segmental flexion of the spine or just through whatever means they can, how might that impact um, the development of, of pain around the hips. I know that's like a monster question with like a million different avenues, but feel free to kind of run with it however you'd like. No, it's a good question. Mecha mechanics matter. My lens is, is again, though, performance, performance wins, performance wins. So, so our goal is to lift the most weight. If your goal is to squat, uh, whether it's you're a power lifter and, and you're going to use low bar because the goal is to leverage as much load in the squat as possible, or you're a weightlifter and you're going to high bar squat because you're using the squat as a supplemental exercise to augment strength and torso position that'll transfer to the snatch and clean and jerk. I program positions. I program the dose of the load and I coach the positions of the movements to increase the likelihood of performance. So that's just first and foremost, the, I think we can get into the nitty gritty of biomechanics and talk about things that we can't actually see and that we're not actually measuring. And for example, lumbopelvic movement during the squat. So one can say that I coach my athletes to avoid lumbopelvic, uh, lumbar flexion and posterior pelvic tilt during a squat. One can say that I coach my lifters to avoid that. However, we know from biomechanical studies that that motion is unavoidable during a squat. Your lumbar spine will flex and your, and your pelvis will posteriorly pelvic tilt at the bottom of a squat. Without fail, I don't care who's coaching you. If it's Stuart McGill, they did a study with Stuart McGill who was coaching people with the uh, 
it was either the good morning or the, it was kettlebell swing. Bogotsky was the good morning, but coaching people, the, the, you know, Stuart McGill, neutral spine himself, loves to, he's done great, done great work. But uh, if anybody's going to coach somebody out of a butt wink, it's going to be him and he couldn't do it. So the point is we have to, all, we have to at least find common ground that these motions are, are natural human motions. And there is um, a wide variety of strategies that, it, that people use to get the task done. We just have to accept those facts. With that said, if there are positions that I feel are not going to transfer long-term to the goal. So if somebody is starting in one position in their torso and lumbar spine, and they turn into a complete roly poly poop dog at the bottom of their squat, I'm, I'm going to correct it. If I feel like it's going to affect the performance of the goal, if I feel like this strategy is not going to hold up with higher stress and higher loads, the injury thing just manifests itself naturally. Like if you also feel like that's an injury risk, that's fine. But just even addressing it from a performance perspective is usually going to put people in the most biomechanically leveraged positions anyway to distribute force to their tissues. So that's why I take a performance lens because it, it basically ticks off all the boxes. I might think in my head, I'm going to change this also because I think there's a higher risk of injury, but that's not always the case. Um, like the best way to cut, the best way to change direction, the absolute fastest is also the position that looks a whole lot like when people tear their ACLs. So there is always this balancing act of performance and injury risk and lifting weights is no different, but movement matters. I just take a performance-based approach. So if I feel like somebody's doing, for example, roly-poly poop dog at the bottom of their squat and I think that it's going to impede performance and maybe it also aggravates uh, symptoms. So right then and there, we've probably got enough evidence to intervene. It aggravates symptoms and I don't think it's sustainable to maximize performance. Okay, well, let's fix that. So if you can get away with simply demonstrating and verbally cueing, having them watch you and mirror you, this is what, you're, this is what I'm seeing you do. This is what I want you to do. Just start there. Don't make it complicated. A lot of times that doesn't work because you've probably already tried to cue them or if they could do it, they would have. Sometimes it's just a matter of, dare I say it, going lighter. Because a lot of these movement strategies that happen that you feel are either not sustainable for performance or injury risks, they don't happen with the lighter loads. They only happen with the heavier loads. I mean, if this athlete is using a movement strategy that they, as their default, but they have other options. They just have to learn how to make that the other option their default instead of the other way around. So if they can maintain the position that you like during lighter loads, you have to use that as motor skill acquisition training. And you have to educate them that we want to get stronger, but we need to take a step back right now to fix this position. And I know you can do it because I have a video of you at 70% and it looks great. And 90% folds you up. So we have to find where that threshold of technique is and get more work there. That's motor skill acquisition 101. Um, from there, what are our other cards that we have that we constraints that I call them that we can manipulate to get somebody to be able to train, um, kind of maximize the positions that we want and uh, you know, teach them how to move within comfortable ranges of motion. 
Well, range of motion itself is, is a constraint that we can manipulate. So let's say, you know, it's, it's not until the very bottom of the squat that they have some type of, of what you would call movement strategy that's not sustainable. Well, that's where something like a pin squat or something like a squat to a box comes in very, very handy because you're adding a constraint right at the precipice of where things break down. It's, it's still challenging, but it gives them that little bit of support. And then you can incrementally lower the pins, you lower the box. So it's not just, all right, we'll just program box squats. Make it systematic. Make it, make it as hard as possible, but still uh, doing the job of, of constraining their position, you know, right where it starts to break down. They will learn over time, especially if you lower the, the cue, lower the box, lower the pins. It's, it's going to remain difficult, but you're making progress from a range of motion standpoint. As far as structure, uh, people's hip structures are about as unique as their fingerprint. So I won't list them all, but there are several anatomical variations like version of the femoral neck, the orientation of the hip socket, whether it's more lateral on the uh, ilium or more forward oriented, the angle of the hip socket, whether it's kind of angled up, down, forward, back, the depth of the hip socket, on and on and on. All of these factors that determine hip structure and ultimately where somebody feels most comfortable squatting from a stance standpoint. So there is no one size fits all when it comes to squat stance because of all of those differences in anatomy. So you've just got to explore and experiment. Sometimes people will see a stance or a video on YouTube that says this is the optimal squat stance and they try to jam their anatomy into that stance. That's not going to, that's not going to happen. Like you're not going to change your bones. People who can just like go really narrow and toes forward and just drop their butt on their ankles with the upright torso. They didn't do anything to earn that stance. They just picked the parents that provided them with the genetic structure to do that. Not to say that you can't make subtle changes to tissues and to positions, but if, if you're somebody who, who's like, I have to be wide and toes way out, that's my slot. You're probably never going to be the squatter who's super narrow toes forward. So if, if we just want to anchor this with the extremes and of course there's everything in between. So structure is not, it's not good or bad. You know, if you're, if you're wide toes out, it's not good or bad. It, it just is. So you experiment with different stances, you find where your slot is, and then that's where you live. Um, if that changes a little bit over time, you know, three years ago, you were a lot wider and, and now fast forward three years from now, you've, your stance has evolved a little bit and you're a little bit more narrow. That's cool too. Um, but just don't be so rigid about it. And from a muscular standpoint, I'm not sure how, how much that uh, changes management other than it's interesting to know where the, the net joint torques are coming from with these particular movements. Like it, it's just, it may uh, dictate what you program because you're trying to drive an adaptation, but 
I don't need a research study to tell me that if this athlete says low bar squats hurt their hip and they can't perform them, but high bar squats feel great. I don't need a research paper to tell me that we're going to train high bar squats right now because that's the way that we can get heavier loading in. And we're going to slowly incorporate low bar squats back into things as your hip calms down. So I use variations more from that kind of pragmatic side, um, if that makes sense. That was a pretty great overview. I just wanted to kind of touch on a couple of things. Um, going back to your box squat or pin squat um, example, uh, just for anyone listening, like one of the things that I found, especially if you utilize like, let's say an alternating uh, program structure where you have a, a high day and a low day, like a heavy day and a light day, you know, well, Kona's saying, you know, utilizing uh, pin squats or box squats, doing all of your loading, really, really pushing it, still getting that high effort session in while your light day, because it is, you know, inherently lighter. And, and like you were saying as well, a lot of those breakdowns can happen at a certain, you know, intensity threshold, utilizing those light days to maybe go in and, and push some of the range of motion yes. um, tolerance that you can with those lighter loads. And you know that the session is meant for recovery anyways. So it's not that you need to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm really you know, doing myself a disservice by doing this. It actually ends up being part of the program. And then you can kind of close that gap between both of those two. I found that to be very effective, which is essentially what, what he's saying, just you know, a little bit more specific, I guess. Oh, 100%. I love that. You're, you're, that's a great strategy. The polarizing the days like that, I, I do that often. It just makes sense for people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, uh, it's exactly what you said. This is our load and you explain it. Just, we're going to reduce the range of motion, but this is the day that we can go heavier. So that's, that's the mechanical loading day. You know, that's the heavy day. And then this other day, the load on the bar is going to be lighter, but I want you to work on just getting back the tolerance for that full range of motion. So maybe their tempos, you know, but that's, this is range of motion day. So you, you educate the goal of the day. Because it, like you said, like if you don't, they're going to just automatically anchor themselves to the weight on the bar because that's what we do as barbell sport athletes. That's all that matters unless we pull it back and say, no, the, the goal is weight on the bar is important just to get just to feel the movement. But the real goal is getting our range of motion back. So I want you to focus on that because I don't want this light day to wreck you so that when we go back to heavy day, you're not ready for that. I want this light day to feel good. I want you to feel energized when you leave this session. I want you to feel looser. And that way you're chomping at the bit to get some heavy weight on your back. So I really, really like that, that kind of polarized approach that you described. And you could do that for really any movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things um, that I really like that, that you keep reinforcing is we're chasing performance. We're chasing performance because, you know, when you hear we're chasing performance, a lot of times people will think like, you know, balls to the wall all out, but it's like, no, recovery has to occur. And so if a lot of the times, like you can have that conversation with your athlete or even yourself and be like, Hey, what's the objective of this training session? Is the objective of this training session to go really hard or is the objective to produce long-term, you know, performance outcomes. And sometimes that can make it quite a bit easier to, to actually stick to the plan. But one of the things that, um, I, I really liked about what you said was preservation of, of positioning. So if you're seeing like, you know, positioning is, is looking pretty good and then they hit 70% or something like that. And all of a sudden you have this significant degradation of, of their, their position or their form, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm kind of of the, of the belief of, I know Chad Wesley Smith talks about this and 
I tend to agree quite, quite strongly where I don't believe you should have technical breakdowns. I think that the bar should slow down a little bit, but your position should be pretty much preserved and look very, very similar to a 40% squat, a 50% squat, a 90% squat, whatever it is, just at, you know, a slightly slower rate of, of movement. Um, and I think like you were saying, if you do that, you're going to obviously be optimizing your biomechanics to move the most amount of weight, which I, I think is pretty reasonable to assume that that would likely be the safest, except for if you, <laughs> if you go too heavy, then, you know, but, but you know what I mean? But no, you're, you're right. And the, the technique is a really interesting one because you have, it's, it's, there's a paradox because you have to actually go heavy to know if the technique that you use at really light weights will work with heavy weights. Cause there's sometimes like, Oh, this feels good with like 40 kilos and 50 kilos. But then when you get 80, 90 plus percent on your back, you're like, Oh, okay. I can't keep this torso angle and actually lift really, really heavy. Like it you know, depends on the movement, but you realize that. So, but, but if you're, if you're experienced enough and you've, and you know what your technique is that maximizes performance, that's your anchor. If you can't currently tolerate that, it's not that that technique is wrong or bad. It was just that that happened to be the position where you overflowed your capacity bucket. And now that position is sensitive. That position is not currently tolerable. But generally the goal is manage the load so that mother nature can calm things down. We get you back to that position because we know it maximizes performance. There are times where the position that you found that you thought maximized performance didn't. We find a new one. Maybe it's torso angle. Maybe it's the, the amount of arch that you utilize. Maybe you're a hard archer. Maybe you don't arch at all. Like all these things. Like sometimes we do find the strategy that not only feels better, but also actually ends up being better for performance long-term. And that's cool too. But um to, to find those things out, you have to stay in there and, and keep like plugging away. And that's like probably the hardest thing with an injured uh, lifter is the tediousness of sub threshold training. When you're hurt, the weights are like, they're lighting up. They don't get you excited. Um, training's just not fun during those times, but that is, that's the period that's so important because so many lifters, like I said, they either don't, they either go in way too hard and just keep jamming into the problem or they pull completely back and they just dig themselves a deeper hole. So if you can just stay in there and either you pull back the frequency or the overall volume or the intensity on your high days, or you have to change up the variation, you change up what you need to, to keep being able to go to the gym you expect that you're an adaptive creature that this will turn around if you give it enough time, like you'll have an upswing. Um, and sometimes that just takes like, it's just momentum. You can just, you can tell like all of a sudden things are kind of like feeling better. Uh, and sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Like you're, the momentum is now going in the positive direction. That day will come. That doesn't mean you're pain free. That just means that you can feel the momentum going in the right direction. Um, and if you can stay in the gym while you're waiting for that period to occur, now you're in a great spot to push your training because you haven't detrained. You've, you've held the line, so to speak. 
you know, and, and all of the strategies that we've laid out so far, there's so many ways to skin the cat. Maybe you don't want to go, maybe intensity is the last thing you want to give up. And so you decide that you're going to change range of motion because you know, it's a specific moment in the squat that hurts. You decide you want to keep intensity. So you constrain range of motion. Maybe you're a lifter who already cuts your squats high. Like you already have a bad habit of getting called on depth and you're like, well, I actually want to work on range of motion. Like I know that intensity will come as I heal up, but like, I don't want to lose my range of motion because I already, it's already a problem for me. Maybe you decide I'm going to cut the intensity down and maybe some of the volume, but I'm going to try to keep all these squats full range of motion. I just have to go lighter to be able to tolerate it. That's fine too. So there's not a right or wrong. You kind of have to decide what variable you want to go after give it a try it, give it enough time to see if it's going to work, you know, two or three weeks, something like that to see if you're gaining some momentum um, and then potentially manipulate another one and, and kind of just take that systematic approach the same way that you would, if you were healthy, you know, we, we're going to increase intensity or we're going to increase volume. We're going to increase frequency, those types of things. It's the same with rehab. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love how you outline that too. And a lot of the times too, it's, it's something really simplistic. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be this really complex thing. Like I need to do ice baths and, you know, then jump in my crowd chamber and take five deep breaths and I don't know, do whatever else. Um, like, I think I've had, I don't know, at least a dozen athletes who would very consistently and reliably experience pain in, in the squat um, and then pain in their shoulders. And literally all we did before I did anything was I was like, because, and the reason why I did this, sorry to provide a little context. The reason why I assumed that this might be an, an issue was because I would look at their, their sets and as their sets progressed throughout the session, their technique would get better and better and better, mm. which I mean, shouldn't really happen if you're accumulating fatigue. So one of the things that I thought of was, Hey, you know what? This might actually be that they're just not warming up until their last set. Maybe we just need to do a, a better warm up, you know? And I'd get them to do these really aggressive warm ups with very light weights. So they're like sweating, huffing, and puffing that were specific to the movement of the day. And then, like, literally, like magic for them. It was like no pain, no whatever, you know? And it, it was just something so stupid. Like, you weren't warm, you know? And again, we, this is one of those things we all know that we're supposed to get warm. It's literally called a warm up. But the amount of times that I've seen people train without actually getting their body physically warm is like, I'd say that's the majority as opposed to the exception. I agree with you hundred percent. I do get the counter argument is I don't want to be fatigued for my top sets. And I get that. I do totally get that. But honestly, if your warm-up sets, unless you're, unless you're taking like sets of five at 90 and 95% before you're single at hundred, if your warm-up sets are fatiguing you for your top sets, you are just out of shape. Like we need to, we need to get you fit for this sport. So I, I feel like we've taken, we've, that's pendulum has swung way too far. And I agree with you. I see some crazy jumps with like, I'm cool. You know what? I'm, you take the jumps you want to take when you're healthy and things are going well, this works for you. I take, you know, hundred kilo jumps up to my 700 kilo squat. Like, like if you squat, if you're squatting like into those numbers, not 700 kilos, um, so I'm going to say 700 pounds, maybe 350. Um, but if you're, if you're squatting those weights, you, your jumps are going to, be relatively bigger, of course, but you know, if, if you're just, if you're somebody who squats in the fours and you're going, 
you know, empty bar, 135, 225, 315, 405. And like you say, you say it's like, well, three at 405, my hip just hurts too bad. And they only take like one or two reps at each load. It's just, it's hard to prepare your body with such, with such low preparation. And what's interesting is these are the same lifters that spend 30 minutes doing other stuff. Like they're on the turf doing, you know, whatever it is, the foam rolling, this, all the, all the toys, they've got an entire bag of shit. And then they come to the bar and they race to their top sets. And I try over time, I try to flip people's habits upside down because that's not how behavioral change works. But I would like to see that flip-flopped where if anything, we're trimming all that non-specific extraneous stuff away completely. And we're taking that time frame that you spent doing it and we're putting that into your warm-up for the squat. It doesn't have to take you know 30 minutes, but it's taken the empty bar more than once. It's taken 135 more than once. It's maybe, God forbid, even putting 185 on the bar and swimming that around a little bit, 225 to, God forbid, 275 before you put three wheels on. You know, it's like it doesn't have to be crazy, but you're right. And, and you would be amazed at how much more prepared you feel to hit your top set when you've gotten to that, like, warm body clicked feeling before your top set, not during your top sets. So look, we're talking about low hanging fruit here. We talked about nutrition and sleep. Now we're talking about warm up. And, you know, if, if, if we could, you and I, like we could probably make a rule. Don't, don't talk about your injuries unless you can prove, unless you have a case that you cleaned up these three things. Now, I know that's silly and, and, course we would never do that but just for, for context for us as athletes as well you know looking at the basics before we try to do anything super complicated yeah and, and that's such a such a common like i love the distinction you made or the the how you highlighted sort of that point about people are willing to you know mash their bodies on like lacrosse balls foam rollers banded distraction flossing whatever else is, is you know popular at the time but they're not necessarily willing to spend like 10 minutes of just like a really hard warm up, just with an empty barbell till they get sweating, their knees feel great, their ankles are good, their hips, everything's feeling nice and warm yep. before they actually start taking those big jumps. And uh, like for me, I am one of those guys who likes to take really big jumps. I'll usually do about like between 50 to 100 pound jumps per set usually. Um, but that's because I got to go up relatively high, like you were saying. And so I just yep. like, can't do it if I'm doing like 15, 20 pound jumps. But like, that's why it's so important to take those, you know, however many sets you need. Like, sometimes it's honestly like six minutes. That's how long I need to warm up. Other times it's like 10 or 15 minutes. But the difference it makes in your session, I think, is, is really meaningful. Uh, and especially the cumulative effect and the momentum you build up of like, hey, I'm just having really great training sessions. Things are clicking. I'm feeling good. I don't have the same pain and aggravating, you know, symptoms or pulling like I was having before you know, you really allow yourself to perform at the best level. Um, and and I, I definitely think that's a really great habit. And like, I, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it doesn't need to be 30 minutes, right? It, like a good 10 to 15 oh. minute warm up tops. Like if I always tell my athletes too, I'm like, honestly, if you're spending more than like 10 to 12 minutes warming up, you're probably doing something in there that's not necessary. Or you're wasting yeah. time. Yeah. You're just yeah. taking too much rest. It's like you, like, like if you're, 
you're taking those jumps because you have to, you know, you're working up to relatively heavy loads. You know, you're not going to take 500 for a bunch of triples, but you might, you might spend a little bit more time at 225. You might take a, a, a set or two more than what you would have normally taken. And that weight is not going to fatigue you, but it's enough to get the juices flowing and it's enough to kind of like get that pop and, and light things up a little bit. And that's what we're talking about. So 100%. That's also the time that you can use to experiment. So going back to positioning with the hip, especially pelvic tilt, this is not good or bad. It just simply is from a biomechanics standpoint, pelvic tilt has an effect on hip range of motion. So for example, and you can, you can try this out experiment, just even sitting in a chair or standing up. If you arch your back as hard as you can, like a bench press arch standing up. So maximal anterior pelvic tilt, try to squat down. It's likely if you and maintain that arch, it's likely that your depth is going to get cut. The harder that you arch like that, it's not good or bad. It just is. The, the reason for that is when you put your, your pelvis into anterior pelvic tilt like that, you're basically already flexing your hip. You're just moving your pelvis on your femur instead of your femur on your pelvis. So you get to your end range of hip flexion sooner, typically the harder that you arch. That's just, that's a, a consideration for somebody who's already maybe not Gumby to my point here is the amount of arch that you have in your squat is something that you can play around with in your setup and in your warm-up sets to end your, your stance. So you're, you're combining all of these factors. You're playing around with stance, how wide your feet are, how much degree of toe out that you have trying to find the slot that works best for your hip structure. And you're messing around with arch, arching harder or not arching as much and seeing how that feels. So the warm-up sets that we're talking about is the time to mess around with that stuff because you don't want to find, you want, you don't want to be having to find your, your slot at your top set. You want to have already established that and you can mess around with it during your warm-up sets because it's light. You're not going to get tired and you can also be in full control. Like you could mess around with different stances and arches and end up doing like a set of eight. You didn't even realize it because the weight's so light, but it doesn't matter because it's light. And so you can take that time to do that. But that's also why the warm-up sets are important. They can be something that you're putting cognitive focus into from a positional standpoint, from a skill acquisition standpoint. It's not, it doesn't just have to be like brainless, literal warm-up. It can, it can, you can combine all of these things that we've talked about. Um, but if you spend 30 minutes on the foam roller and you only have five minutes to warm up because you have to leave the gym soon, you don't have time to experiment with that stuff. So now you're, you're trying to literally get warm and find your position of comfort at your top set. And that tends to not work out as well. That's a really great addition. I'm glad you said that because I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that to be honest, but I think that's a really valuable way to use your warm up time for something other than, like you said, just physically getting warm. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I feel pretty confident that if you do that and you take a very conscious approach to that, then you can see some pretty interesting things about, you know, foot stance and back position and when you hinge and how much hinge, how much forward knee travel and all the yeah, other exactly. things related. So like, yeah, that, yeah, that's actually a really, really great point. 
So I, I know you touched on, or sorry, you, you mentioned, and we have kind of been talking about some of the uh, different strategies to, to implement uh, to deal with hip pain. So what are some of the, the strategies that you might use, whether it's, you know, I know you talked about uh, volume and load, but what are some other things like maybe let's say tempo work or um, utilizing exercise variation or accommodating mm-hmm. resistance or, you know, things kind of along that nature and, and beyond? Yeah, there's a whole bucket. If, if we just, um, I mean, we've talked about a lot, but it's, it's good to review these things because it's, this is the crux of it. And this is the kind of the lens at which I deal with rehab with barbell sport athletes, especially because it's, it's actually really nice to work with barbell sport athletes because the training um, mimics the sport so closely that you can really play around and tinker with these training variables and you can really, and you can see more of a direct effect in the moment. Like the test retest is more realized than like a field sport athlete where you're, you're trying to manipulate things in the gym and then you let them loose in this very chaotic environment on the field where you don't know what the hell is going to happen and how much load they're going to be, you know, succumb to and all these things. But with barbell sport athletes, things are, are more predictable and the environment's more predictable, which is nice. So we'll just, we just start brained up in some of these variables that you have at your disposal with the key being try to be systematic with which variables that you manipulate from where you're starting from not, and not trying to change everything all at once because then you don't know what's working and what's not. There's too much noise. So intensity being just load on the bar, you ask yourself this, do these, do these variables affect my thing? And if we're talking about pain in the squat, does the heavier that I go, the worse my pain experience gets on average? Sometimes the answer is no, as paradox. So it's not a stupid question. I ask them, straight up. Is it worse at heavier loads? A lot of times it's yes. Sometimes it's no, but if it's yes, intensity is a potential variable that we're going to manipulate. Volume. Does it get worse? Is it worse when you're doing more volume or is it worse at the fourth and fifth set versus the first, second, and third set is volume a contributing factor sometimes? Yes. Okay. Volume is a potential variable. Does your pain, does the hip pain occur at a specific point in the range of motion? Something that we could be uh, relatively controlled with. If the answer is yes, range of motion is a variable that we can manipulate. Sometimes it's kind of like, it's too variable. You know, sometimes it hurts in the middle, top, bottom, like it, we're like basically flipping a coin if we did a box squat at a certain depth to where it's like, okay, maybe, maybe other variables will give us more certainty and more clarity. Maybe we manipulate range of motion in the future. But if it is like people say, yeah, it hurts right at the bottom, right coming out of the hole, something that we can be a little bit more measured with range of motion is a potential variable tempo. um, A lot of times with tempo, the faster our tissues get strained a lot, sometimes the, the, that's more stress on the tissues. And sometimes that can be a, a contributing factor. Like when the hips already pissed off, bouncing out of the hole becomes a problem. However, if you go really slow and and control the change of direction, you might not be able to squat as much, but it's more comfortable, more tolerable. If that's the case, tempo then is a variable that we can manipulate because it might allow us to keep a relatively intense squat workout, albeit at a constrained tempo. And, And I mean, even putting them on a metronome, I do that a lot. 
So tempo is a variable. So we're just listing all these in no particular order. Um, position is another one that we talked about. So, so I'll ask them, does it, have you played around with stance? Have you played around with torso position? Do, does that have a bearing on anything? And they say, oh yeah, you know, when I'm, when I'm more narrow, it feels better, but that's not my, I don't feel super strong in that position. I'll say, okay, well, that's a potential short-term strategy for us to continue training though. So position is on the table as a variable that we can manipulate. Um, variation. So if it's a weightlifter, always front squat versus back squat, I'm asking them, is there one that feels better? Uh, for a power lifter, I'll say, does low bar feel any different than high bar? If they do high bar, um, safety squat bar, a lot of the times feels better. This is totally anecdotal, but a lot of the times a safety squat bar will feel more comfortable on the hip because the, the arms are not tied up. You're not in this super arched position because your hands are not tied up behind you on the barbell. Your hands are in front of you like they would be during a goblet squat. And the bar is way up on your back with the safety squat bar, like a front squat torso angle, except the bars on your back. But the point is it, just, it allows you to just drop straight down and you can keep everything pretty stacked, your rib cage on your pelvis because your hands are in front of you. It's just a really, it's a really nice bar to have at your disposal if you have one. Um, I've actually found yeah. the same thing anecdotally that you're saying for, for high bar versus safety squat bar. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so the point there being though variation is a, a, something on the table for us because they could, they might say, yeah, I got a safety squat bar and safety squat bar feels really, really good. Say, okay, cool. That might actually be our main squatting variation. So talk about polarizing training is we're going to progressively overload with safety squat bar and we're going to like be real slow. We're going to slow cook the low bar, like the really light and really just use it as like technique and positional tolerance training over the course of the next several weeks. Cause we're not worried about getting weak because we have safety squat bar there for our progressive overload stimulus. Uh, belt squats is another variation that, that a lot of times tends to be more comfortable for people with these types of issues. That could be a go-to cause you can crush some, some belt squats for a good amount of volume uh, can get some muscle there. It's not going to be as heavy. It's not as specific, but it's a lot more specific than zero squatting. So, um, and I may have missed a variable there, but you've got all these variables there at your disposal that could potentially allow you to find that, what we call that sweet spot of dose where you're not getting in mother nature's way, but you're also being able to train hard enough that you're not detraining and digging yourself a deeper hole. The adaptive properties of your body is the fix so that's the distinction that i think is is a paradox for people because they think well i've been training so why is you're saying training is the is the fix is the therapy here but i squat that's my problem is squat hurts so so why how how is just doing training going to be the fix but we have in our minds we forget that we're adaptable we think that we're just a rusty hinge on the door that needs to be replaced the rusty hinge doesn't adapt. Once it gets rusty, unless you, you know, throw some, some CLR on that puppy, it's just going to get more and more rusty and it's going to break down. But the human body doesn't work like that. We adapt if we set up the environment to do so. So the, the point is taking the heat down just enough so that we can gain some momentum. The adaptive properties of our bodies can get going in the right direction but we hold the line as far as fitness and even make some gains elsewhere. Like if, if deadlifts feel good, 
Because a lot of times pain in the squat, hip pain in the squat, the deadlift will feel okay. And if that's the case, deadlift like normal, generally. Like don't change anything else. Like we want to keep training as normal as possible. Bench, you know, this is a good time to get a good bench. You know, if you can't, if you can't squat as much, uh, let's, let's focus on other things. So, so you have those variables that you're supposed to know. Which one do you manipulate? I mentioned, I give you a couple of examples of, of why you might choose one or the other. In general, I'm, I'm, I want to say in general, I try to keep intensity there, but in reality, I'm probably having exactly what you had outlined earlier. I'm probably having days that are different focus so that we can affect different variables. So like I said, I want range of motion. We know we need range of motion, ultimately, at least to the standard of the sport. If it's powerlifting, it's a certain standard. If it's weightlifting, range of motion just allows you to do better at the sport. There's no rule that you have to squat your snatch or your clean, but you're just gonna lift more weight if you can. So um, it behooves you to be able to squat. I, 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 want, I don't wanna lose range of motion. So if we only focus on load and you were just doing three days a week of pin squats, heavy, you're going you're gonna to keep that heavy weight on your body, but then that range of motion that you're missing is going to feel real heavy when you go back to it. What I don't want is this reintroduction phase that makes you feel like you took time off anyway. Like if you ran, if you ran four or six weeks of just pin squats, that first day back to full range of motion squatting and probably that first week or so is going to feel, I don't know how it's going to feel. It's probably not going to feel super familiar. It's going to feel really rusty. Whereas the alternative being, had we kept, so I call it microdosing, had we microdosed some full range of motion squats in there with the, with the goal of just range of motion, now it won't feel foreign to you because you have been doing full range of motion squats. And when you're ready to make those full range of motion squats heavier, like you said, kind of bringing those polarized days back to the middle of the kind of normal training, you will be ready. You will be at a different level of preparation for that. So um, load and range of motion are probably the, the two that I go after first. And then um, volume is, 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 is one that, is like a dimmer switch. So I see volume as just exposures to the training. So we increase, we increase volume when I feel like you're adapting well to what we're doing. I'll increase the dimmer switch a little bit. But if I feel like you're not recovering and it's not any one particular day, it seems like just an overall, not recovering to the overall uh, training dose of the week, then I might pull the dimmer switch down in terms of, of sets and reps. But volume is one of those things that you kind of plug and play. Um, and then variation may be something that I implement right away. Like if somebody's super flared up and they're just like, yeah, man, low bar is just not happening. I've tried box squats. It just hurts tempos. It really doesn't matter. It's just that low bar position. We're, we're probably going right to whatever it is that feels better. High bar to safety squat bar to belt squat. Uh, hell leg press. I mean, it's, it's kind of down the line, you know, what's the next most, what's the next variation that we can progressively overload that you can tolerate. And if it's all the way down to a freaking leg extension for now, that's fine. Like if you're that flared up, usually not, 
if you're that flared up where you, you can at least do some goblet squats or something like that, you know what I mean? But that's what you're thinking. Like a top down approach. What's my normal training. I can't do that. What, what do I have to change then to be able to go back into the gym and get, and get some good training in it, out of all of those like options that we chose. And that's kind of how you can, you know, work into a, a plan. If that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And I, I think that's a really, really fantastic framework and it really crystallizes things. Um, if someone is struggling, you, you know, making that checklist and just kind of going down that, that list of like, Hey, how's my range of motion? When are these things actually happening? I think can really eliminate a lot of the emotional responses that you get, because a lot of the times, if you don't necessarily know where it's happening, you're like, well, my program that I'm doing is causing me to hurt. So I'm just going to scrap the entire program. When in reality, it might just be, you know, one or two things like you were saying. And, uh, and, and so I think that that's really, really helpful. And I think a lot of the times too, like as coaches, just speaking for myself, anyways, I think sometimes I don't run through that checklist. It's just something you kind of do intuitively, yeah. which is, is fine for your athletes. But then sometimes when you're trying to explain it to someone else, I, for me anyways, maybe I can fall short sometimes because I don't necessarily have as much of that analytical side as, as someone like yourself, really, who can kind of break these things down and compartmentalize them into different buckets, like you're saying. But um, I also really liked how you, you mentioned kind of shifting the focus a little bit where it's like, hey, you know what, if you can't do squats, let's think of this as like a specialization phase for your bench or deadlift, you know? And so that way you still have a very clear and very tangible uh, goal and, and metric that you can kind of work towards where it's like, Hey, you know, because I have all this extra energy that I'm not dedicating to squats, I have better recovery uh, resources for deadlift and bench or really anything you want. And, and so I actually think, yeah. And I actually think it's really important to try to keep deadlift in there if you can, because that's going to be like your, your heavy lower body movement that you're getting in. If you don't have squat or deadlift, man, you know, we're, we're looking for something to lower, load that lower body. So it's, it's actually really important that we, that we try to keep that as normal as possible. But, you know, you bring up a good point. It's like to say that you don't, you don't have that analytical side. I think that you do. I think that a lot of us do if we think about training, but we tend to dichotomize training and rehab. And we tend to think that rehab is different than training, but we're we all are, we're human and we work by the same physiology. So pain and injury is a, is just another constraint or just another barrier that we now have to throw into the mix of all of the things that we already manage. Like we're analytical about intensity and RPEs and volumes and exercise selection, all these things when it comes to writing programs and that we think somehow it's different in an injury rehab scenario, but it's, it's really not. Um, it's just that, instead of pushing to your capacity limits, you're probably pushing to your tolerance limits in the beginning. And then you're, you're waiting for that tolerance ceiling to rise to the level of your capacity again, the way that it was before, but there's a disconnect between those two. Um, that doesn't mean, I don't mean like going into your tolerance as just not respecting the pain experience, but you're probably, not testing your, your true capacities when you're hurt, you're testing your ability to tolerate wherever your entry point is. And you find your entry point with everything that we listed. Um, and, and so that's, that's the big thing. Like don't separate it. Don't separate injury from training. 
And um, the why, I think, when I have these conversations, the, answer, the question that I'm still not answering is why did this happen? And the reason that I'm not, like, why did the injury happen? Why am I experiencing pain? And the reason I'm not addressing that question is because I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, it's real simple. And, um, like, it's, it's typically not any one tissue either. So that's, that's what also makes it hard to answer because somebody's like, well, like what, what muscle do you think this is? And I was like, well, it's not any, it's probably not a muscle, you know, is it, is it my joint or is it my psoas or this? Well, it's all like, if you open up a cadaver, all that shit is just like intertwined and intermingled. And it's, so I just say like this area right now is, is intolerant to mechanical loading for, I don't know why, um, it's a dynamic interplay between wherever your current state is. Current state is a, a conglomeration of all those low hanging fruit factors that we talked about, nutrition, sleep, stress, your warm up, all the stuff that you did over the past week that you forgot about. Um, all of those things culminate to that moment that you got hurt, or that you experienced the pain. And we wonder, well, why the hell did this happen? There's just no way to add all those factors up and know how they interact. So that's why I, I, I can't answer the question and I don't try to. The way that I um, address it is I say, all we can do is, is kind of map out where you were and what you were doing and try to tick as many boxes, like how was your nutrition? How was your sleep? What training program were you doing? So that was our baseline. And then we map what you can do now and we try to bridge those back together. And sometimes like the ramp up, I don't like calling them training load errors anymore. I used to call them training load errors. And I think that um, is a reductionist approach. It, it blames the program when it, again, too many factors. You can't just blame the program. Maybe the program was great and it was other factors that, you know, dictate your current state, but Sometimes it's like if, if you spread out the progression of uh, like intensity, like your, your week to week, you know, progression, kind of how you want to hit a certain number or a certain degree, a certain amount of volume by a certain time frame. Sometimes we might take the same exact program that you got hurt on, do it, but extend it over the course of two or more blocks so the, the overall goal is still the same endpoint, but you take a lot longer to get there. So you level out that peak a little bit. And uh, that makes a lot of sense for people, just kind of the rate of progression. And I, I use the analogy of like slow cooking it. And especially if you're already hurt, because I don't know what it is about injury. We know the biggest predictor of injury is a past injury. And once it happens, that it's just easier for it to happen again. And that's just kind of the sucky part about it. So as many, if we can tick off as many boxes as possible and the, the rate of progression of the, of the program is definitely one of those boxes that we can tick off. If you're not in a rush, don't be in a rush. If you don't, if you don't have, like, if, if you're not like, um, you know, constrained with a meat or something like that, if you have time, take it from a rehab standpoint, don't be in a hurry. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of the times too, this wasn't something that we necessarily addressed directly, but you know, I, I guess it's, it's probably pertinent to, to just kind of say it. Um, a lot of the times these things can also 
be addressed using less specific exercises. Like just speaking for myself as like a case study, right? Um, I, I really had a lot of back pain when I would have like really heavy squat sessions, like my leg would be fine. But then the next day, like any sort of extension of my low back just killed me. Like it was just so, so sensitive. And I was like, man, like my low back, this was my train of thought anyways. Usually, like now, usually if something hurts, I'm like, oh, I need to do that more. Or I need to do something to tackle that area more. And so I actually started doing like really high volume good mornings. Instead of stopping squatting, I just started doing really high volume good mornings with like a band to, to really reinforce that eccentric strength. Um, and I found that really helped, you know, and, and it's not always that simple, but sometimes it is, you know, and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't change any of the squatting that I was doing or the deadlifting, you know, so it's not, even though sometimes that is the case. And, and I think that's also, you know, why you were saying that as well with the whole looking at the hierarchy and saying, okay, how specific can we stay with our training while reducing or eliminating the, the pain symptoms or making it manageable so we can still see that performance progress, right? And you, so you pick something because this is a really important point. Like you might not pick the thing that has the most bang for buck. You've got to make a guess. Like I, I make guess, I guess this is a, maybe a bad word to describe it, but I take all the information that I have at my disposal and make a decision on what to intervene on. Sometimes the thing that we intervene on first actually doesn't have the effect that we wanted to. So we course correct in that scenario, you kept everything the same, except you added this thing. You took the information as like, my legs feel fine. It's always my back. So I'm going to say I want to strengthen my back or, or at least prepare that area for loading better. You, you implemented an intervention and it had the intended effect. That's awesome. Let's say it didn't. You would just, you wouldn't get frustrated and just scrap your entire program. You'd say, okay, what else can I intervene on? Well, let me look at the intensity progression. Maybe I'm going heavy too frequently during the week. Maybe it's actually always the second day of heavy squats that gets me. Maybe I have to rearrange my set, my weekly structure or that second heavy day needs to be a medium day or something like that. You get my point, but you just kind of, you pick something, you try to detach from the situation, which is extremely difficult or emotional or humans. It happens, but try to think about it, how you would think about it for somebody else from a programming standpoint and tackle, you know, be kind of methodical with how you tackle it. The frustration with that entire process is that it takes time. Like you didn't know if the good morning strategy was going to have its intended effect until you, you took the time to think about it. You took the time to implement it. And then you waited a sufficient amount of time and sessions to see if it was actually going to work. And if it hadn't of, you would have had to do that same process over again. And that is frustrating and it's annoying and it's tedious but you know what? So is being stuck in rehab purgatory for months at a time. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to clear, like, just to kind of reinforce that point, like for me, this took about six to eight weeks to really like at around four weeks, I was like, I think this is the right thing, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Around six weeks, I was a little bit more confident at eight weeks. I was like, okay, this is, this is it. I need to do these things to increase tissue tolerance, blah, 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 or positional tolerance, whatever. Um, but yeah, it just, it just can take a long time and it, it can be super frustrating, but at the same time, I think that if you just kind of shift your focus to like, Hey, if I really nail this, it's likely that I'll have a much more robust back or hip or whatever is, is the issue. And I'll probably have a much higher threshold than before, which means that I can probably get away with pushing, 
you know, much higher before I actually see any sort of issue, you know? So it's like, even though it seems like you're taking a bunch of steps back in the long run, you're actually setting yourself up for some pretty significant success and progress in your lifts, just because you are having that kind of like longer term vision of, Hey, you know, if my elbows are always beat up, maybe I should start doing some bicep curls or try or, right. or whatever the fuck it might be. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, we could take the cliche approach and say, well, it, it improves your problem solving skills because it does. It, yeah. I, I think training is a skill in and of itself. I, I say this a lot. I'm still honing this skill. I, th I think if you train, you're going to hone that skill until the day you die. But the, the skill of training, what I mean by that is it's a endless series of decisions that you're making all the time. You've made a decision to do the program. You're going to make decisions on the day to day. Also, when things don't go completely as planned, we're constantly making training decisions. And to think about the short term and the long term of each of these decisions is a skill and you get better at anything the more you do it. Injury is a really good time to hone your skill of training because you literally have to make decisions on the day to day, because you don't know how, what's going to, how it's going to feel. Um, and you go in with a plan A, you should probably also have a plan B as in I'm going in here with the intention to low bar back squat to full depth. If that ain't happening today because of the hip plan B is whatever variable that you decide to manipulate that we've talked about. Um, but I think it helps with our problem solving. It helps with our patients. If you have athletes yourself, it's going to help you better manage them when they're going through these situations, having dealt with it yourself. So, you know, use it, find the positive in any way you can. Yeah. And I think one of the best examples of that in recent memory is Brandon Allen, who like he tore his quad squatting, I, I believe. And for months, he was benching like a plate and he wasn't even able to squat like body weight, like months. And this is a guy who went from like an over 900 pound squat, you know, who, who's projecting a thousand doing like really struggling to squat to a box with just his body weight. And he just kept going and kept going and kept going. And now it's like several months later. And I mean, he's back to benching, like, you know, 500 pounds, his squats are starting to come up again. And it's like, you know, he just kind of stayed and kept his nose on the grindstone and, and kept going. And like, I think that's a really important distinction between athletes who have a really long career and, and people who just kind of fizzle out because almost yeah. always there's solutions. It's just, are we willing to do the work to, to find those solutions? Are we persistent? Are we patient enough to, to kind of see them through? Are we going to get discouraged? Do we have the right people around us? Like there's so many variables to, yeah to kind of throw us off track. And, and that's why it really takes someone special to, to really reach that elite level because you are going to get injured and your response is really going to determine how, how you come out of it. There's two things there, you know, to kind of wrap this up. It's like time, the time is going to pass anyway. So Brendan, like that example or anybody, us, we're hurt. You're like, well, damn, now I got to rehab for the next three months. Or like, I know the next three months of training is going to suck because I'm going to have to do X, Y, Z. But like that three months is going to go by regardless. So you're either going to be at the end of that, however long period of time it is and say, I literally did nothing. And now things are way worse than they were. Or you're going to be at the end of that time period, having filled your bucket with as much training as you possibly could, being a hell of a lot happier and, you know, in a better spot to move forward. So the number one is the time is going to pass regardless. It's your decision of how you feel it. And then the number two is the point that you made. 
of, of training is almost a game of attrition. Like there's going to be the, the, the peaks and valleys. And like, if you can just, like you said, keep your nose to the grindstone and stay in there, you'll see a lot of people just kind of fizzle out because they can't take the ups and downs of it. Um, that messes with you. But if you just kind of keep chipping away over time, usually end up in a pretty darn good spot. Like when you zoom out, you might not be the best, you might not win the thing, but if you just keep chipping away at it, you end up pretty happy with your progress. Um, and at least you can look back and say, you know, obviously I did what I could. Um, and injuries are just a really good test for that because it's just so easy. It's so easy to get frustrated and for that to, to turn into a spiral. Cause I've, I've definitely been there. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on that 90 minute mark. And honestly, this was a really, really awesome conversation. Actually uh, we, we explored a lot of things that I didn't even necessarily have in mind. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, before we end off, where, where can listeners find you? Yeah. Um, on social media. So uh, you can, I'm on Instagram, quinn.hennickdpt. I'm on Twitter, not super active there. Quinn Hennick DPT, I believe. Uh, Facebook, and you can follow the Clinical Athlete uh, channels as well on Instagram and Facebook and clinicalathlete.com. And we have a new, um, we partnered, Clinical Athlete partnered up with a company called the Level Up Initiative, which is kind of their specialized in kind of the, the education and communication skills and um, just kind of behavioral change side of things and clinical athlete, you know, exercise prescription and, and rehab and performance and these types of things. But we create a free Facebook group. It's called the Calu community Facebook group. It's, it's basically any professionals or students that just want to talk shop. We do case studies, we do journal clubs, uh, we do student zoom calls. So it's all for free. So you can search that on, on Facebook and uh, it's, it's just an awesome I think an awesome resource. Awesome, man. Uh, two things that I want to mention that I don't think you mentioned specifically are, uh, he also has a podcast that's out that I'd highly recommend you guys check out. Uh, it's a clinical athlete podcast. Is that right? Yep. Yep. I was literally listening to one of your case studies today. One of the, the episode on, on hip pain. <laughs> nice. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We've got an episode just like this on there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, uh, and also the clinical athlete directory. This is something I use on a regular basis, especially because I have lots and lots of international athletes that I can't necessarily refer out to, you know, local uh, clinicians. It's mm -hmm. a really great way to just kind of be able to find someone who's got a lot of experience from a clinical standpoint, but also is, is used to working with athletes as well. And this is a really great resource that, uh, that Quinn and his team put together. So I'd highly recommend checking that out. Um, to find a clinician in your area, especially if you are dealing with an injury and you just don't, you feel like it's a little bit out of your, uh, out of your reach or out of your, what is that scope? Scope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, but yeah, is there, is there anything else you wanted to add, I guess, before we jump off? No, I think that's it. The directory is free. It's just on clinicalathlete.com. It's on the website. It's just a map. I think it's a, it's a big red button at the top of the page and it's just a map of the world and all the pins on there are uh, the clinical athlete providers and, and like you said, they're just, they're, they're clinicians, but they're also athletes. So they just, they understand the performance goals of, of athletes. They walk the walk. And so we thought it would be cool to put together a directory of those types of clinicians so that athletes could actually trust their provider to not just, you know, tell them to stop squatting or whatever it may be, but actually get them back to doing the things that they want to do. 
So yeah. yeah. 100%. So all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Also, if you like the podcast, please give it a five-star review, share it, uh, send it to someone else on Instagram. I really, really appreciate all of the reviews that I get. And it definitely helps me build the podcast, grow exposure and get more awesome guests like Quinn. So Quinn, thanks so much for jumping on, man. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much.